Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. $1.6 billion. That's how much money Michael Bloomberg has spent since 2005 on anti-smoking programs and propaganda. During that time, global smoking declined by 5.2%, and yes, some of that decline may be thanks to Bloomberg and his money, but his help comes at a cost. Over the last four years, Bloomberg has pumped hundreds of millions of dollars into U.S. anti-vaping campaigns that poisoned the public's perception of vaping, supported the passage of 55 state and local flavor bans, and likely is responsible for untold vapors returning to smoking. Last week, Bloomberg Philanthropies announced new funding of $420 million aimed at reducing global tobacco use, with $140 million to reduce teen vaping in the United States. How does the industry plan to fight these efforts? And can they? Joining us today for a special edition of RegWatch is April Myers, President of Safada, the Smoke-Free Alternatives Trade Association, Travis Pinkerton, President of the USVA, the United States Vaping Association, and Daryl Tempest, representing NAVA, the North American Vapor Alliance, and Strategic Advisor to Safada. Folks, it's great to see you on the show. Good to see you too, Brent. Thanks for having us. While seasoned viewers of RegWatch may be surprised at seeing so many vaping advocacy groups together in one show of force, but there's good reason for that. April, let's start with you. What's going on and is there an announcement? Yeah, there's a, a lot going on. And um, I, I would say that, you know, you were just talking about how Bloomberg was pumping a lot of money into um, opposing viewpoints to the, the vapor problem, if you will. And so to combat that, <clears throat> the only way to successfully combat that is through strength in numbers. And so to do that successfully, one of the things that we have done is strategically aligned with the USVA. And so that was the big announcement that was made to our membership on January 17th, was that the Smoke-Free Alternative Trade Association and the United States Vaping Association were teaming up to focus on their core strategies, but in conjunction with each other and sharing intellectual resources um, in a way that has never been done before. And Travis, what is that strategic alignment? The strategic alignment is where Safada and the USDA come together and we utilize resources with one another because we both have our own strengths and weaknesses. This way that we're both moving forward more effectively and we're having more success working together than against each other or in different directions. When Safada reached out to us, we seen the huge opportunity for us to come together and really use the court action, the legal action that we're taking for the small businesses in this industry to you know, push back against the overburdensome regulation, regulatory process that the FDA is continuously pushing out. We started thinking you know, a little bit out loud, okay, what if we win in court? Once we win in court, then what's the next step? In the USDA, we're very much geared. We have a great law firm, a great team of people that are put together that really have their thumb on this and know where we can find our victory. And we had to be realistic and say, who else is out there that has the strength whenever it comes to engaging at the state level and at the federal level, as well as with the FDA to really push forth meaningful change that is going to protect all the small businesses. And Safada, absolutely across the board with their, their, their time in the industry, everyone knows them and, you know, they have a lot of success and very, you know, wide, broad areas that, that's out there. 
so we're looking at this strategically coming together saying, you know, we're going to support each other, create strategies together and move forward with fighting in the same direction. Um, really coming together with a, a sign of unity. So that way we can show our members that we can all work together. And the more we work together, the more successful we all are. And that's, that's what we did. That's what the announcement is. And that's the action that we're taking moving forward. Travis, just take a quick moment and explain to our viewers what the USVA is. So the USVA is a, it's a nonprofit organization, 501c3. We're a membership-based. And anyone that comes in and becomes a USVA member, um, they're automatically included in any legal action that we're taking. So when we go and we file into court, and you know, whether it's the non-delegation doctrine or the RFA, as we'll get into here in a little bit, you know, what we're able to do is, is through the court, uh, put in there that we have USDA and its members that are seeking uh, the sort of relief from enforcement. And as we go through with all of these, we are con continuously updating our membership base. And what that does is it'll allow us, if we get a victory in court, a positive ruling, that we can then turn around and say, well, we need this to blanketly be included to our members. And with a person being a USDA member and us being able to document that through the court, um, we will have the, the possibility of, of a discretion with a judge to say, okay, everyone listed here, this is where, you know, who is protected under that. So that is, that is what the USDA's prime main function is, is we're going in and fighting a court against the over burdensome regulatory process that is within our federal government and all the agencies that we have to deal with. So, um, and then on top of, on top of that, we also help out with other areas, helping folks with their PMTAs, correcting PMTAs and, uh, kind of walking them through the process and helping them with the testing aspect as well. So April, it sounds like, uh, USVA is the pit bull going into, uh, the courtroom and that's a different approach than Svada's approach. It is. Yeah. And and I think Travis kind of nailed some of that on the head in terms of the synergies between the two organizations. Uh, um, Safada had looked at the, the legal case um, under the Regulatory Flexibility Act. You know, when we looked at it as leadership, we thought, you know, kind of for us, that would be a last recourse because our um, mission has always been to advocate for reasonably regulated marketplace. And that means to negotiate with and work with agency officials. So it means working with legislators. It means meeting with congressmen. It means meeting with uh, CTP, um, Director King and all of those people. We can't do that if our name is embroiled in a lawsuit. And so we decided not to pursue the lawsuit. But when we made that decision, we knew that we learned actually at the time that USVA had a lawsuit under the similar um, premises. So that was what originally prompted myself to pick up the phone and reach out to USVA and begin this dialogue of strategic alignment because it allowed USVA to be the pit bull and Safada to come up and continue our focus on um, other strategies that have more meaningful change in that PMTA process. Mm -hmm. So it worked really, really well. And so our focus is still on that. It's going to remain on that, which is legislative strategies and changes and then um, a scientific pathway for the PMTA, because it answers that question of what Travis said earlier, which is what happens when they win? What does what does that do? I mean, ultimately, it would take all of these applicants 
ideally, and put them back in the review process. But without any change making t- taking place, what does that do for anybody? It doesn't help. Right. It still is putting that square peg in that round hole. And ultimately, all we're getting out of it is, you know, views products at 50 milligrams and things like that, which aren't really helping the adult consumer that is our clientele base. Mm. Daryl, I want to just bring you in here for a second. Now, most of our viewers know you from your work with and still, obviously, with the Canadian Vaping Association. What is it about the cross-border thing that has you interested in this? Well, there's a lot of reasons, uh, Brent. I think it goes to what the global strategy is. It's one of the things, having had a chance to talk with April and Travis, um, I think it's first to understand the premise that the U.S. market is about 47% of the products sold globally, give or take, which means that other markets, such as smaller markets like Canada, are going to get squeezed for options and efficacy of products that work because that global demand won't be there for uh, continuous innovation of these products to make sure that smokers across the world um, uh, have an alternative to combustible tobacco. And if we look at the strategy between um, uh, Safada and with the USBA, it matches our own strategy uh, and hence why NAVA came together because it's more of a think tank type, type of uh, of organization trying to bring together all these best ideas and best practices from across the world because so many great advocates, whether it be consumers or trade associations, are taking these massive leap forwards. And Brent, as you know, in Canada, even Health Canada has started to take a different step recognizing vaping as harm reduction. So we have to figure out what has worked uh, through all of these uh, different countries and all these trade associations. So this is uh, the way I would say is the perfect marriage. We're able to give government all kinds of options, make sure that they understand their legal premises because that's what's being debated in court and to come up with all of these solutions. So the US matters, it matters a lot. Now we're gonna take a deep dive obviously into the details of the SFADA USVA Alliance. But first I do wanna ask the group, what do you think of Bloomberg pumping another $140 million into the US for anti-vaping initiatives? I think that you can pump all the money in the world into something, but no matter how much you pump, it's not going to defeat scientific fact. And so that is, again, an area that Safada is very focused on. And that is where I believe all of our success is going to come from, because there is no refuting scientific evidence. I mean, I personally have been vaping for 10 years and and there are so many stories out there like me that have been called anecdotes to, to date. So we need to take that anecdotal data and turn it into real world scientific evidence. And when we do that, that is irrefutable. And there's no amount of money you can spend that is going to be able to refute that. Travis? <clears throat> yeah, so personally, I think, you know, the money could be uh, better spent in other areas. Um, Overall, one of the things that he's really trying to look at, you know, how to protect the teens and, and protect the, and, and eliminate the, the youth vaping is if you really take this and you focus on harm reduction, because teens are teens, kids are going to be kids. And no matter what you do, they're still going to find a way to get their hands on it. So I believe my, in my opinion, there's, there's other avenues that the money could be better well spent, uh, and have a better, um, result than what they've continuously been doing. So overall, He's pumping his money out there 
And it's just going to be a waste of money in the long run because, you know, I do believe that harm reduction in the science, as April said, is going to succeed. And one thing that we have to remember is that the teens and the age demographics that they have, they all grow up and they turn into adults. So the more that you try and take away things like vaping that are harm reduction, you really have to consider what the long-term effect is. You know, how is it going to affect them in four years, five years, six years, whenever they're an adult now and they don't have these available to them, but we still have a variety of tobacco products on the market that are, as we all know, for decades now are more harmful than what vaping has ever been. Travis, obviously, USVA has got a lot of experience and track record uh, with the courts. During that time over the last couple of years, has the science ever been brought in? Has Have you been able to challenge the science in court? So as it stands now, no, they have not brought it in in the few cases that we have. But uh, that's under the USVA. The, the law firm for the USVA, Navarre Law Firm, out of Houston, Texas, they were going in and have successfully argued some MDOs in the Court of Appeals. And in arguing these MDOs, the science is regularly brought up. And now Jared, he's very familiar with this stuff, and he has been able to use that science and use the Youth Tobacco Survey to, uh, to, to counter against the FDA's claims. And now we're getting into a point with the RFA where we will be able to have studies, we will be able to have science and really put it in. And one of those things that we're doing for the first time is we're taking this science and we are filing it in court to be under a court record. So that way it's officially recorded and it's never been done so far. And that's one of the things that we're very hopeful on. And that's where it's very exciting to work with Safada because of their reach with some of the, the, the agencies that are out there that do perform these studies and do have the science behind them that we can use and use in court against them. So April, let me ask you about McKinney. Um, who are they and what are they doing with you? McKinney Regulatory Science Advisors is a independent firm that does exactly what their name suggests. They do regulatory science advisory. And so I actually met um, the founder, Willie McKinney, at an event last year. And um, we started engaging in discussion about, um, I think it was right after the bundling and bracket memo came out. And so the industry was all abuzz about how this could have changed everything if it was put into effect. And so it was a really poignant time in uh, industry history in terms of discussion of, of theory. And so um, I took a lot of that thought and, and brought it back to Safada leadership and said, listen, we really need to to change the way that we're thinking in terms of how to attack this process. And I met a really fantastic toxicologist by the name of Willie McKinney, who <clears throat> come to find out in further discussions, he has um, gotten products through the PMTA process. He comes from a tobacco background. Um, he's also a toxicologist, so he knows uh, toxicology inside and out. And he knows um, very well connected within the agency itself. <clears throat> so, um, during our discussions, we started thinking about ways to attack the most onerous process that wouldn't just help an individual company, but would actually help the industry and the agency. And so having that level of academia and um, intellect kind of feed into the work that we were doing was really insightful and ultimately led towards a very good pairing and partnership. And so that was why we landed on McKinney as our chosen scientific partner. 
Yeah, they're definitely impressive, aren't they? They are. Yeah. In fact, we have one of them. Uh, one of the members of Sign uh, McKinney is actually a board member of ours. That's Kimberly Hess. And she was very helpful in presenting to Reagan Udall Foundation on behalf of the Safada Board um, of Directors during that uh, event. And to that point, April last year, FDA Commissioner Robert Califf tasked the Reagan Udall Foundation to conduct a review of FDA's PMTA policymaking process. In October, the foundation heard disturbing testimony from internal stakeholders at the Center for Tobacco Products, stating that the scientific review process had broken down. And in the Reagan-Udall report released at the end of last year, the panel went as far as to say that FDA Center for Tobacco Products has struggled to function as a regulator, in part due to its own policy choices. Let me throw it to the panel here. Is the FDA PMTA process broken? 100% yes. I think you'll get unilateral agreement on that across the board from every single player in this industry. And no matter how big they are or how small, I mean, we've all seen it in the everyday aspects of our lives. Travis? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Broken and then some. And and the main reason why it's broken, in my opinion, is because when you go to the FDA and you have a question, they can't even give you an answer uh, because they don't understand it. And then most importantly, uh, the next question that you have from there, they want to turn around and say, oh, I can't answer any more of this because now I'm consulting you and we're the federal government and I can't do that. So, you know, they have a process that just recently became finalized. And uh, with that finalization, you know, when you're in court, and you're arguing these things, especially on the MBO bill, you know, they can't even answer some of these questions that, that are just had in general. And if you also look at the PMTA as it stands now, it is broken for a reason. And, um, you know, it's because it's, it's doing two things. It's laying out a pathway for the big guys, for the largest stakeholders in the industry, mainly big tobacco. And then it's also broken and impossible to navigate if you're a small business or a small firm uh, that doesn't necessarily have the connections and the length of time and experience and navigating a PMTA process that nobody's ever had to deal with before. I agree with all that. That's certainly what we've been reporting for some years now. The one thing, though, that I'm surprised that you're not mentioning is the benchmark that allows them to approve a product, and that is whether or not it's appropriate for the protection of public health. And the definition of that is that it may work and be beneficial to adults. The most important thing though, is that they don't attract kids. And if that is deemed to be the case, it seems there's no future for vaping, at least under this framework. Right. I, I think that's the, that's probably the, the biggest issue is that there isn't a definition period. So in all of the rejections of um, products, there were two major lines, the biggest one being that the product has not demonstrated that the benefit to adult outweighed the risk to youth. But the in order for a product to be approved for a marketing order, it has to show that it is appropriate for the protection of public health, or we call it APPH. But there is no definitive guidance for what that means. If you were to ask an FDA official, what does that mean? You could get a 20 page document back that says absolutely nothing that you can actually comprehend, take back to your company and say, okay, guys, here's what we need to do. So that's the biggest crux for everybody trying to get through this process is that until the FDA comes out with a definitive guideline for what is 
appropriate for the protection of public health, it's a fail, fail scenario. And so that is one of the biggest questions that FDA needs to answer. And it was one of the things they did get um, skewered for in the Reagan Udall report was that they need to answer the question, whether it's a policy or whether it's based on science. And if they're going to make a policy, the policy should be based on science. And so we did see in the Reagan Udall report, thankfully, many members of the agency itself standing up and speaking out against how policy and science were in conflict with each other. Now, since flavors are at the heart of this so-called risk to youth, what's happened here is basically the FDA has implemented a de facto flavor ban uh, without actually having to take that to consultation or actually turn it into, you know, regulatory law. Most products, you put it on the market and then the product stays, remains on the market and then it doesn't come off unless it's really proved to be harmful. Oppositely with vapor, we have to prove that it's safe and it's not going to hurt anybody. And I mean, even, and and it hasn't even been given a a benchmark to say like, okay, well, what is the risk to youth that's deemed accessible, acceptable, excuse me, is it one youth? Is it no youth? And so nobody has that answer. Like what is an acceptable level of risk? And so there, I'm sure there are some schools of thought. I know there are that say it's absolutely no youth. Well, that's not realistic. I mean, youth experiment, they do silly things. We were all young once we all did stupid things. Right. Um, but what is that level of acceptable risk? And then what is the acceptable benefit to adults? Until those benchmarks are firmly in place, the entire industry is set up to fail. And and overall, that is one area that with, with the RFA and USDA legal action that we're taking in courts, that's one of the things that we're focusing on is finding this science, getting the science, and really putting that forth in the courts for judges to look at. Because at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the ones who truly have the power are the judges. So if we can get that in front of them and have, have science, you know, good studies that have now been produced for the industry alone and through McKinney and through another uh, 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 ADAT, you know, we're looking at two studies that we hope to really get in line so that way we can use those in court. So to force them to accept the science, but the reality is, in my opinion, is that uh, it's like April said, you know, their their number, the magic number that the FDA has is zero. And that's just unrealistic because the reality is the ones who are affected the most by this are the ones who, who are your middle class and your lower income because they, they're going back to something and they're using it. And whenever you're doing things like that, you're really putting other people at a disadvantage and we'll never get to that point at zero. Daryl, let me ask you this. I mean, we know when the U.S., catches a cold, when they sneeze, the world catches a cold. And Canada certainly has been affected by the misinformation around the epidemic, the misinformation around E-Valley. I mean, it's had demonstrable effects in Canada. So when Travis and April are talking about positive science coming out of the U.S., what does that mean for uh, Canadian vapors? It, well, I think it's what it means now for global vapors, Brent. I think we've kind of moved beyond uh, what's good in Canada and what's good in the United States. We just have different systems. But the science is the science, and it's coming out from all over. You know, uh, the Cochrane Group doesn't, or uh, Cochrane doesn't look at one specific country. They look at hundreds of studies around the world uh, to come to these conclusions. 
I think what you're going to see in this strategic alignment, and it comes to what you said off the shelf, there has been billions thrown at anti-vaping campaigns across the world. You can cut through that big scary number of 1.5 billion or $2 billion dumped as long as you're very strategic and talking to lawmakers in the language that they understand. These, both of these languages, whether it be through the judicial system or through the um, uh, through government relations and positive interactions with bureaucracies, um, you're talking to them in their language. So you're cutting through all of those uh, press releases and 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 uh, may happen. Uh, that's one of the things that I say in court all the time. If you take may happen or could happen out of American heart or like uh, cancer, heart and stroke, it, they're Press releases wouldn't make any sense. If you understand relative risk and the premise behind relative risk, which our industry is based off of, is, is essentially relative risk, is that relative risk over 30% needs more restrictive policies. Relative risk under 30% needs more permissive policies. So if you truly believe uh, the current best available research and science to say that vaping is at least 95% less harmful, it would dictate to government that they must be more permissive with their policies. But you must make those types of arguments, and I'm not suggesting this is an argument in the United States, but it is an argument in Canada, uh, where we are in our uh, particular constitutional challenges, is that under that premise, you must look at this from that point of view. And that's why it's not always just constitutional, why you need uh, to litigate and you need to look at a full menu of legal options, because it's gonna give you the best arguments for McKinney and Safada and the types of experts that we utilize to tell that science-based story. So it's just a combination of all these concepts into uh, validation that this is the right pathway. And that's why you're seeing this as a more global trend. So I have a serious question for the whole group here, and that is what the hell is wrong with having a minor nicotine habit? That's a loaded question. <laughs> I mean, overall, if you look at nicotine itself, it's a nootropic. <laughs> And I know quite a few people that never smoked, never did snuff, never used pouches, never used anything along those lines. And they have picked up and started vaping. And the reason why is it helps them keep themselves focused. For people that have ADD and ADHD, nicotine has proven to help them keep you know, their mind in place and to stay focused on things. And through many studies out there, it shows that it can be used as a nootropic. There are many regions in the world especially in Canada, where it's fine if you're a 25-year-old person and decide, I've never smoked marijuana, and then go and buy marijuana sold by the government and pick up a THC cannabis habit. That That is A-OK in Canada. So well, And it's, it's A-OK in the United States in a number of states now as well. And in those very same states, there are flavor bans enacted it's it's a major juxtaposition in personal freedom of choices. I mean, if we're having but, that discussion, I mean, it, it is a major um, hypocrisy. But now you're right. a California is one of California is the biggest case in point there. Ca California, my last visit to California on one side of a bus, there were ads for cannabis and for vaping cannabis. And it actually said on the bus that vaping cannabis was the most effective and best way to get it into your system. And it was better for you than smoking it. And on the other side of the bus, it was an anti-vaping um, 
advertisement that said that vaping was going to, it was like one of those teen, teen ones with the worms in your brain and that it was going to destroy you. And these were on opposite sides of a bus. And as a person just standing there, my mouth was agape going, how does no one else in the world see this hypocrisy? Like, I don't understand it. Like, it just makes no sense to me. How can one product with THC in it and another product with nicotine in it be so much more villainous than the other? Like, that makes no sense. But I think that's the importance of the lawsuit. So I've had these arguments and I've been around the table with the lawyers as well. The key question here is why does someone experimenting with a product legally impact my ability to reduce my harm? Because that's what a judge wants to rip apart. And what a judge needs to understand is that this product absolutely can get people off of smoking and is far less harmful. Um, than uh, than combustible cigarettes. So that's the beauty of the lawsuit to get to the heart of your conversation, which is to show uh, all the proof that nicotine by itself is benign. And now you can take all that information that is under oath, that is in, in all of these packages that all these attorney general's offices have, and you feed it right up to the main administrations, where you're gonna be able to explain it in a context that they'll understand. Because remember, you have policy advisors in government too. So you'll say, please verify what they just said. Please verify this fact. Please verify what Mr. Tempest said here, right? So that's how all those pieces uh, culminate together, Brent, in order to make an effective argument. And that's the, the biggest challenge that advocates in our industry have had moving up to this, because we used to say the science is catching up to vaping. It caught up. Travis, take a moment to dive into the Regulatory Flexibility Act. This is the next big thing that USVA is doing, and I like I like our audience to understand that a bit better. So the Regulatory Flexibility Act was introduced under the Reagan administration by the Office of Advocacy, which resides at the Small Business Administration. And it's a seven-page outline that pretty much says one-size-fits-all regulations isn't going to work. So... What it does is it goes in and it gives a, a definitive outline of what a government agency is supposed to do and the process that they're supposed to follow whenever they release new regulations. And part of that is that it gives clear and concise examples of what is accepted and not accepted. So your government agency has to provide an example of approved and an example of not approved and why and how they got there. And so far, we don't have that from the FDA. And for us, as you know, we started noticing the, the vape apocalypse and September 11th under the Trump administration, where, you know, you have uh, Secretary Azar coming out and saying a variety of things and that vaping was, you know, the youth vaping epidemic, Ivali and all this good stuff. What happened with that is they, they ham-fisted, put out a bit of regulation, sent it over to the office of uh, the president and uh, uh, the OMB. And with them, they started opening up a comment period. And I think, you know, the USDA, SAFADA, and a number of other groups out there had, had scheduled to get in a meeting, fly there, sit down and talk with them and give us, you know, give our side of the story. And for us, with the USDA, what we started noticing is as this comment period had opened up and all of the comments started taking place, we've seen that every time the Small Business Administration and the Office of Advocacy put forth their comment within 24 to 48 hours, all, every single one of the meetings had been canceled and it was closed out and went away. 
And this didn't happen once, but it happened twice. And whenever it happened twice, I turned around and said, hey, I see this. I've been talking about the, the RFA since 2015. You know, the time wasn't quite right just yet at that point because they hadn't released any anything. They haven't started affecting businesses with MDOs, shutting them down, uh, sending out cease and desist. None of these things have started happening. So we kept it right where it was. And that's why we chose to continue the pursuit of the non-delegation doctrine. And, um, you know, it's really a separation of powers argument is, is what the non-delegation uh, uh, lawsuit was. And um, so as we rolled through this and we got to the point where, you know, the, the 6.5 million applications went out and just started blanketly denying everyone, we knew at that point in time, okay, now we have something we can grab onto. We have some fruit. Let's pick it. Let's run with it. And Jared, you know, he started, we started going back and forth, him, him and myself, and looking into it, reading about it, seeing other areas of how this could apply, you know, making sure that through the APA that, that it had standing and that the FDA would be included in this. And sure enough, they are. And uh, now we have clear examples of where the RFA has been violated. And that's why we are now taking this opportunity and going straight with it. We waited, you know, we waited X amount of time to allow, and I know it, it sounds bad, but we waited to allow enough companies to start being affected, negatively affected. So that way, when we filed this lawsuit, guess what we have? We have examples now of where this has been violated and how it needs to be addressed and how it needs to be upheld. And, um, you know, with the Reagan-Udall report, man, it, it has just made everything for our case and has strengthened it even more. And right now, at this point, uh, you know, Jared has been in communication with uh, the legal counsel of the Small Business Administration, and, and they're looking at, at the premise of our RFA lawsuit, and they have already given us their, their word, like, yes, we will support this. We will write an amicus brief on y'all's behalf in support of this case because they do agree. And as you've reported here on the show and April has seen, you can go through and see many, many occasions where the Small Business Administration has come out fighting for us little guys and saying, you know, this is going to be devastating if these regulations are enforced. It's going to kill out small businesses, which make up the largest portion of this entire industry. Is there still an opportunity for SFADA's members to get involved with this USVA lawsuit? How do they do that? Sure. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> so um, as a Safada member, <clears throat> you have to be a member in good standing. If you are a member of good standing, all you have to do is go over to the USVA website and pick which membership level you want. We prefer that you support both uh, organizations equally. We have actually changed our membership structure to match each other because we wanted to make it easy and seamless and as simple as possible. Um, and also to, you know, reduce the burden on the businesses that are fighting the hardest in our industry. <clears throat> so you can go to the USVA website as a Safada member. Um, as a USVA member to support Safada, you do that on the Safada website. So each membership is held individually, but we will be identifying dual membership and we have a cool new dual membership logo that we'll be unveiling, um, adding a decal and other um, member perks as or dual membership perks as we roll this out. So this is just the first, but I know there is a date coming up of March 3rd. That's an important date for the USVA lawsuit because that is when they begin scheduling 
the beginning parts or the trial dates, I believe. And, and Travis can talk a little bit more about that because our focus is elsewhere. Safada is scheduling meetings with legislators. We've got um, meeting requests on the books with Brian King. Um, we're working on uh, open dialogue with CTP, which is a little bit different. So, you know, we're going to let them play the pit bull and be the named um, organization on the lawsuit. And we're going to continue doing our work unencumbered. And Travis, just reinforce that date for us. Yes, that's uh, March 3rd is the, is the exact date, March 3rd, March 4th. Uh, that's whatever the phone call is going to take place where they start discussing the outline, like what kind of time frame uh, is, is, is each legal counsel going to need. And we do know right now at this point that the FDA is automatically going for a fast timeline. And uh, the reason why they're going for a fast timeline is, in their opinion, they don't believe that there's any need for discovery right now. And uh, obviously, we said no to that in, in the cordial communications between legal counsel, DOJ, and the Navarre law firm. And, um, and, and we've made that very clear. So that way, when we do get to the court uh, and, we're, and we're there, we're talking about the scheduling timeline, we're going to make our request and say, well, this is the information that we're going to need. So it is going to need some time. And, and along with that, at that same time, we are discussing some other fast-acting legal action that is going to really protect uh, members. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a long game that we're probably going to be playing with this, but it's very um, shows a lot of positive uh, signals here that we're going to get the ruling that we want in, in the lower trial court, just because of the amount of the evidence that has come out uh, over the past six to eight months. Mm. So April, you know, you've been around the block for a few years, as have I. And the one thing that I've heard over and over and over again is a, it's a bit of a kind of a incredulity when it comes to the concept of unification of vaping advocacy groups. Now, on one hand, everyone calls for unified action, but then nobody plays well together in the sandbox. Um, is that partly because you're trying to do the same thing or there's overlapping efforts or, you know, why should people take this unified stance um, as something that is actually going to make a difference? It's a great question. I, I think a lot of it comes from a misunderstanding of what unity truly means. I think a lot of people think the word unity and they think that it means sameness. And that is not true. Unity does not mean we have to be the same. Unity means we need to share the same purpose. And so in this case, that's what it is. And so one of our biggest challenges in the industry has been um, numerous groups duplicating resources and efforts. And so through the, the strategic alliance with Safada and USVA, that is eliminated. So we are sharing intellectual resources. We are sharing you know, each other's strategies. And we literally laid our cards out on the table. And I cannot tell you in all my years in doing this, what a relief that has been to have that discussion. I mean, it didn't come easy. I mean, our first conversations were very guarded. Um, you can see Travis shaking his head, yeah, that's true. But as time unfolded, this this relief of, oh my God, I can actually trust this person. They're actually looking out for the best interests of the industry and giving me the information that I need so that I can make informed decisions and not waste intellectual or financial resources that could be better applied elsewhere. Like that is such a benefit to the industry that we have not experienced to date. And so that is the most positive outcome that can come out of unity. And that is what everyone has really truly been asking for is let's not waste, let's not keep doing the same thing over and over again, 
and have 10 people do the same thing in maybe a slightly different way. That's not successful. And from a, an opposition perspective, that's what they want from us. Like the more we're divided, the more likely it is for them to succeed over us. And so those billions of dollars that Bloomberg is spending is gonna be much more effective against a scattered, divided opposition. When we're united, and I think of this cartoon where they went, oh, the chickens are organized, right? That's a scary thing. When the industry gets organized and, and unites in this way, that, that puts them on notice. Like, okay, we finally got our stuff together. We know what we're doing. This one's focused on this one. This one's focused on that one. Like there's, there's no stopping at that point because that's what they've been doing to us.